He was living on the banks of a river in modern-day Iraq, a long way from home during the Babylonian captivity, Ezekiel. But what are we to make of the 48 chapters of his book today? What do we actually know about Ezekiel the man? Well, coming up on The Land and the Book, you're going to meet Ezekiel up close and personal. Plus, Bible questions that have puzzled listeners just like you. Maybe one of the questions is yours. So join us now for an update as well on all the headlines from the Middle East in this program we call The Land and the Book. Our host is Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. Charlie, how's your day going? Uh, John, it is going great, even better when I'm sitting and looking at you and uh, talking about the land in the book. Well, speaking of the land in the book, uh, this kind listener called our listener comment line and wanted to share this with us. Hi, my name is Roberta Fuller, and I just love listening to the land in the book. I wish it were on more than just Saturday. I listen to it on podcast because there's days I can't listen to it, and I like to go back and I can look at the archives. In fact, I've even listened to programs twice. Listening and learning more about Israel, I doubt if I'll ever get there. But thank you for being on. I hope you never get taken off. I want Moody to know they're doing a great job. Thank you. Charlie, Roberta is a listener after my own heart, listening twice. I find I have to do that, and the podcast makes it easy, doesn't it? It does. You know, that's the nice thing. You can just go back and uh, uh, listen to the program again, or if you missed it the first time, uh, be able to listen to it when you do have the free time. It's at thelandandthebook.org, our website, thelandandthebook.org. Well, how do you share the gospel with a Jewish person? Because of cultural, historical, and religious differences, it's sometimes challenging to navigate a gospel conversation with somebody from a Jewish background. You ever wondered how the uh, quote-unquote professionals do it? Yeah, and to answer that question, our friends at Life and Messiah want to mail you samples of the tracks their staff use as they share the gospel. This will serve a dual purpose of equipping you in methods of presenting the gospel and also supplying you with tracks you can give to your Jewish friends and neighbors. Life and Messiah's prayer is that these tracks will help further the spread of the gospel among the Jewish people. Now, to receive this helpful assortment of tracks, all you need to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org and then click on the Moody Radio button for more information. Don't miss out on this great opportunity. All right, current events from the Middle East. As of this week, Israel's new government continues to struggle to find its political footing. Weekly protests against its plans for legal reform continue. And Israel's Supreme Court ordered Prime Minister Netanyahu to remove a coalition party member from his cabinet position. Can the coalition regain its balance and move forward, or do you think it's heading for collapse? Well, I I don't think the government is heading for collapse, at least not yet, but it does need to work its way through some difficulties. Now, as long as the protests remain peaceful against the government, I believe they'll continue, and in some ways they serve as a relief valve to allow those in the opposition to vent their anger in non-destructive ways. Now, as time goes on, articles are appearing that offer a more balanced perspective on the proposals to overhaul the legal system. Apparently, Prime Minister Netanyahu assured the visiting White House National Security Advisor that proposed changes to the judiciary will be softened before the legislation's passed into law. And the U.S. ambassador to Israel stated publicly in an interview that the U.S. is not going to be, quote, telling Israel how to construct their judicial system. An editorial in the Wall Street Journal said Israel's Supreme Court is actually less restrained than its counterpart here in the U.S. They defended Israel's planned judicial reform. 
and opposition party leader Yair Lapid suggested Israeli President Herzog set up a committee for balanced judicial reform, which in essence was acknowledging that some reform is necessary. Netanyahu chose to abide by the court's mandate to remove Shas leader Arya Derry from the cabinet rather than create a major constitutional crisis. But how this issue gets resolved could determine whether the current government survives long term. With 11 seats in the Knesset, Shas is a key component of the current coalition, and that party is not happy with what the court decided. Different opinions are being floated, including uh, dissolving the coalition and having a vote of, quote, constructive no confidence, which then would allow them to immediately form a new government that would include Derry as an alternate prime minister. But that option creates an entirely different set of problems, including a timeline when Netanyahu would need to cede power as prime minister to Derry. Another option is to search for a different position within the government that Derry could fill as a Knesset member, but that would not cause him to run afoul of the Supreme Court. One option was suggested that was having him serve as Speaker of the Knesset, but it's uncertain if he would be willing to accept such a reduction in office. Now, all that to say, Prime Minister Netanyahu again needs the wisdom of Solomon to keep the different parts of the current coalition intact and working in harmony to accomplish their overall agenda. Now, if he's able to do this, it could be the greatest piece of internal political leadership he will have ever demonstrated during his many years in office. Well, December, January, and February are normally the rainiest months in Israel. How much rain has fallen so far this year, and what's the impact so far on the Sea of Galilee? Yeah, year to date, Israel has only received about 50% of what they would have expected in rainfall. And in terms of what they should receive during the entire rainy season, well, they're not even quite at 30% yet. Now, it's not yet classified as a drought year, but rainfall has definitely been significantly below normal, at least so far. Uh, they can still get significant rain in February and even into March. And the good news is that there is rain in the forecast for the upcoming week, though how much isn't yet clear. But right now, the Sea of Galilee is just under six feet from its upper red line. That's where it would then start uh, flooding. But it's about eight feet above the lower red line. Now, that puts it right in the middle of where it should be. But this time of year, this is when the water should be rising toward the top of that upper red line. Instead, it's dropped 20 inches since October. In addition to the predicted rain, though, that might be on the way, there's another bit of good news for the Sea of Galilee. The project to pump excess water from Israel's desalination plants into the sea is now complete and water is flowing. Eight miles of underground pipe were laid to connect the lake to infrastructure leading to the five desalination plants. Now, the goal of that project is to maintain the water level in the sea, even in dry years. The water will be added to the sea as necessary to keep the water level more constant. Hopefully, rain will show up here in February and help fill the Sea of Galilee to mm -hmm. the upper red line. And then that additional water could help keep the lake topped off during the dry summer months. Uh, John, I'm heading to Israel in March. I'm hoping to see a nearly full lake with water levels still rising. We'll wait and see. All right. You're listening to The Land of the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, Middle East expert, frequent Israel traveler. I'm John Geiger, and you know, Charlie, we haven't talked much recently about Libya, but the country was in the news this week as some members of the Arab League boycotted a meeting there. Why did these folks refuse to travel to Tripoli for the meeting? Yeah, the meeting was to prepare for an upcoming session of the Arab League foreign ministers that will be held in Cairo. Uh, Libya holds the rotating presidency of that organization right now, so Libya's foreign minister was in charge of the meeting. 
Uh, the problem is that Libya is still divided into those two rival governments, and it was the UN-backed government of National Accord based in Tripoli that was uh, chairing this meeting. Well, the rival government based in eastern Libya, which is where the House of Representatives is located, refused to acknowledge that other government. Because the meeting was being held in Tripoli, it was boycotted by those Arab states that support the other government. Only five of the 22 members of the Arab League actually sent their foreign ministers to the meeting. Four others sent lower-ranking delegates, and the rest of the Arab League snubbed the meeting. Hmm. And that included Egypt and Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, who are very strong supporters of the rival government. Even the Secretary General of the Arab League failed to come. Late last year, this split threatened to break out into civil war. That didn't happen, but there are still clear signs of division within the country. And with no solution in sight, the country is in danger of splitting in two or moving into open civil war once again. And if that happens, the impact on both the people of Libya and on the countries dependent on Libya's oil could be significant. Charlie, in plain English, the two halves of a split Libya would be roughly what, politically? Actually, both parts of Libya are Sunni, so uh, it's, it's not a split over that. It's more tribal splits within the government, and that country is very tribal in nature. All right. According to a recent report, Iran is building two naval carriers that will be used to launch drones and attack helicopters. Doesn't sound good. How serious a threat will these carriers be to the region? Well, the report's actually far more menacing than it really is. Uh, projecting power over sea requires more than just converting two container ships into floating launch pads for drones and helicopters, which is what Iran's doing. And, you know, it takes an entire task force to protect targets like that from aircraft and missiles and submarines, and Iran doesn't have the resources to do that. Now, these cargo ship conversions will be slow-moving targets wherever they go, and should Iran ever launch an attack from them against, say, Israel or a U.S. military target, well, it's almost certain a counterstrike would be launched to eliminate that threat. So the main use of these fake aircraft carriers might be PR value, you know, claiming to be able to match the United States with their own carrier fleet. Now, they could also use them as platforms to launch attacks against countries that may be unable or unwilling to retaliate. But it's hard to imagine the survivability of an Iranian carrier should it ever be identified as a source of an attack on a country that has the ability to retaliate. And that's a look at current events from the Middle East. Coming up, a conversation about Ezekiel. Remember the old spiritual Ezekiel saw the wheel way high up in the middle of the air? Well, our conversation will be very down to earth, I promise. We invite you to visit our website anytime for information about our programs, guests, and more. It's thelandandthebook.org. Thelandandthebook.org. Ezekiel, up close and personal. That's where we're headed next on Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. He was born on the banks of a river in modern-day Iraq, a long way from home. That's because the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel was born during the Babylonian captivity. But what are we to make of the 48 chapters of his book today? And what do we actually know about Ezekiel the man? Well, you're about to meet Ezekiel up close and personal. I'm John Geiger. Welcome back to The Land and the Book. And before we head off to Babylon, Let's explore your neighborhood and think of ways that you can share the love of Christ with a Muslim friend. So I'm thinking of a Land in the Book listener, and uh, they're at work with a Muslim friend. They've said hi, you've said hi. 
And that's it. You want to take that whole relationship one step further. Let's talk with Lena Abujamra, who knows all about developing relationships with Muslims. What do I do, Lena? Well, make them a bowl of hummus. <laughs> uh, invite them over to eat. Food is a great catalyst of all times. So uh, have them over. Don't be afraid to do that. Well, you know, I would think they would say, gee, I'm Muslim. You're probably not a Muslim in this great Christian country that isn't so Christian. You know, I'm not even sure they would say yes to my invitation. You they, think they would? They probably will say no at first. Ask them again. Keep doing it till they say yes. A lot of the Arabs need a little pushing into it. They're just being polite. Some of it is cultural. Uh-huh. But uh, just persist in it and, and don't be afraid to invite them over to your house. Hummus, huh? It works. Yeah. <laughs> Better than brats. <laughs> I love brats, but probably not a great idea to start off That's with right. that. Okay, anything other than hummus that I should share and anything I shouldn't share by way of food? You know, people are always so worried about that. Just be yourself. Yeah. I feel like... It's so obvious when people are trying to play a, a role of something. Mm-hmm. Well, what should I say? What should I do? Just be yourself. They know you're going to make mistakes. They're going to make mistakes too. You know, should I take off my shoes when I go in the house or not? Ask. Isn't that what you do when you go to people's house? Yeah. yeah you just tell them. Lena Abu Jamra is a pediatric ER doctor and has written the book Resolved. We're talking about relationships with our Muslim coworkers. What about that person who says, uh, I-, I haven't even said hi yet? Yeah, you're not alone. A lot of people, like, you just eye contact, divert away from... Yeah. And, and, and I think it's less so with a man, unless we, we do so much profiling, don't we? Yeah. But a woman who's covered, like, you just think, I'm just not going to talk to her because it's just hard. I don't know what to say. You know, the more I work with Muslims, the less I see the hijab. I just don't even notice it. Mm-hmm. And look at the eyes. Keep your eyes on the eyes. And uh, I love that. Keep your the eyes of the soul. on yep. the eyes. Great practical advice from Lena Abu Jamra here on The Land and the Book. Erica Wiggenhorn is the founder of Every Life Ministries. She teaches in all kinds of settings and serves on the women's ministry leadership team for her church. She's also taught women in the Arizona State Prison System and overseas. She loves to share God's Word through Bible teaching, conferences, seminars, and retreats. Again, a graduate of the Azusa Pacific University, Erica lives in Phoenix with her husband Jonathan and their two kids, Eliana and Nathan, Erica has written an eight-week Bible study series from Moody Publishers titled An Unexpected Revival, which, of course, is based on Ezekiel. We're very glad to have her with us today on The Land and the Book. Welcome, Erica. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, let's begin with the obvious, Erica. Ezekiel was not born at a super happy time in Israel's history. Describe the day in which he lived. Yeah, well, he was stuck in Babylon as a prisoner, actually, a political prisoner. And, you know, we have to remember in Ezekiel's time, their concept was that God was in one place. He was in Israel. And so they're 700 miles away, and they are wondering, does God even see me? Does God even care? Does God even know what is happening here? And they thought that they were being punished by God by being placed there. Okay. What would daily life have been like for Ezekiel and his wife? No mention in the Bible of any children in Scripture, I don't believe. No, we don't see any kids. Uh, You know, and I think a lot of times what the Bible doesn't say is as important as what the Bible does say. Uh, But what we do know is that Ezekiel was a priest, and so he would have literally spent his entire life preparing to become a priest. And that dream was totally dashed because you could only be a priest in Jerusalem. And since he's exiled from Jerusalem with no plans to return home, you know, what he had planned and prepared for his entire life is now gone. 
So we can imagine there would be a lot of despondency in Ezekiel's daily life. You know, what is my purpose? What am I supposed to do with my life? That's Erica Wiggenhorn. I'm John Geiger, and this is The Land and the Book. We're taking a close-up look at the prophet Ezekiel today. Erica's eight-week Bible study on Ezekiel is the basis of our conversation. It's called An Unexpected Revival, and it's from Moody Publishers. Almost everybody has heard the spiritual Ezekiel saw the wheel. I mean, it's been recorded by everybody from Woody Guthrie to Bing Crosby. The song is based, of course, on Ezekiel's remarkable vision. We're going to get to that in a moment. But what else might shed additional light on this man, Ezekiel himself? What can we know, Erica? Well, I think what we can know is that he is living in a place of complete disappointment and doubt, right? The whole idea was that God, in Ezekiel's time, he is being asked to deliver a really difficult message Mm -hmm. to his people that they are not going to understand. And I think about, you know, us in our modern day lives, right? Maybe we are the only believers in our family, or maybe we feel like we're the only believers in our family that are still adhering to biblical truth in the way that we grew up. And we're sensing this call of God on our life. Like, we've got to stand for truth. We've got to speak some difficult truth to people that don't want to hear it. And that's a hard place to be in. And that's exactly the position that God asked Ezekiel to be in. He was saying, you know what, I'm going to ask you to stand up for what's right, Ezekiel. I'm going to ask you to send some messages to my people. They're probably not going to want to hear, maybe not understand, but I need you to obey me in this. And I think a lot of us can relate to that in our modern day lives. Yeah. Well, you've already touched on the fact that here's Ezekiel, who is geared up for one thing, uh, a ministry in the priesthood, now kind of doing something else and certainly not being fulfilled in, in you know, his own expectations initially. You have to wonder, you know, did he suffer from uh, depression, anxiety, you know, any clues from Scripture there? Well, it tells us that after God initially gave him his big vision, you know, that's sort of like stepping into a science fiction movie, you know, what is happening here with the, you know, the seraphim and the wheels and the whole bit, we're told that he sat there for seven days, which was the customary mourning period And I think what Ezekiel is trying to tell us there is that, you know, when he received this vision from the Lord, he didn't go away skipping and dancing that (laughs) God had been gracious to remind him that he was still present in Ezekiel's life. He was utterly overwhelmed Mm. at this call of God on his life. And I think there's comfort in that for me. You know, I have felt overwhelmed at the call of motherhood, right? There are times when I think, I can't do this, God. This is too big. This is too hard. You know, I'm trying to teach my kids truth, and they are just not understanding me. They're not listening to me. Very much Ezekiel's situation. But this was a difficult call, And yet God was promising Ezekiel that even in the difficulty, God was doing an incredible work in and through him and inviting Ezekiel into a deeper intimacy with God in these hard circumstances. 
And for me, John, I just really take a pause there because I, I look around, I'm sure you have difficult circumstances in your life. I'm sure you have relationships that you wish were not as strained as they are, (laughs) right? This is a human condition to hear that reminder of God to Ezekiel, like, you know what, this might feel like punishment to you, even Ezekiel, that Mm. you're here in this place right now, but it's actually your protection. And it's actually an invitation to experience the power of the Holy Spirit in your life in a greater way. And that makes me kind of perk up for a minute and go, okay, what's the real mindset I need to have here? What is God really doing Mm. in this situation that feels dark or desperate right now? That's really the message that God has for us in the book of Ezekiel, because Ezekiel didn't understand initially. And even halfway through, he still didn't understand. But by the end, he did. And I'm believing that for all of us as we're just pressing into God the things in our lives that don't make sense, that we can't wrap our minds around, that are disappointing cause us to doubt, is God really here? Is God really at work? Is God really using me in any way on this broken planet to go, yeah, he is. I might not get it yet. I might not fully understand it, Mm -hmm. but he is. And Ezekiel reminds us of that. Erica Wiggenhorn is the founder of Every Life Ministries. She's written an eight-week study on the book of Ezekiel titled An Unexpected Revival. It's from Moody Publishers. So you know it's going to be reliable, rewarding. I'm John Geiger. Thanks for your company today. Erica, you titled your Moody Publishers Bible study an unexpected revival. What about it was unexpected? Well, Ezekiel felt like he had been cast aside and disregarded. In his mind, he was going to be a priest, and he was going to serve in Jerusalem, and he had his life pretty much all figured out. He had a predictable plan ahead of him, and God really pulled the rug out from under him. And so what he thought was the ruin of his life was actually God's pathway to revival. Mm. And so I wonder just how many people out there listening, right, they feel like maybe their life is ruined, or they feel like the path that they thought God had for them has suddenly taken a, a detour or a twist they didn't see coming. And it feels like the end, but From God's perspective, that's actually the beginning. That's actually the place where we become ripe and ready for revival, which Mm. is so backward to our human way of thinking, but God's ways are always backwards. When did your own study of Ezekiel kind of grab you by the throat? What was the point where you said, wow, I, I have got to share this with others? For me, the study of Ezekiel was a huge awakening, John, because He says the same thing. God says the same thing 50 times throughout the 40 chapters of Ezekiel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And when I first read that the first few times, I sort of heard it in like my teenage mom voice. You know, like I say to my kids, um, you better get in there and get that room cleaned up or then you're going to know who your mama is. Right? (laughs) I kind of heard God saying that in that tone to Ezekiel, right? Like, I'm going to destroy the city. I'm going to bring punishment. You're going to stay here in exile, and then you're going to know who God is. And that was the tone that I heard it in. But as I kept diving deeper into these messages from God and these word pictures, 
God gives so many word pictures to try and paint for us the ideal relationship that he wants between himself and his people. The more I dug into those, the more I realized that I was completely missing God's heartbeat. Hmm. God was actually saying, what you're going to know, Ezekiel, is that I am Yahweh, meaning the God who creates and enters relationship. And so what he was trying to get Ezekiel and, of course, all of the people that he's calling Ezekiel to speak to, and you and I today, is that through all of these circumstances, you will understand that at the end of the day, Ezekiel, John, Erica, mom driving her minivan out there today, (laughs) the end of the day, what I want most for you and with you and from you is relationship. God wants relationship with us. And so it just radically blew my mind to see the depths of God's love for me. Because to be fully transparent, John, for most of my Christian life, I kind of viewed God like he tolerated me, right? Like he Mm -hmm. just kind of sat on his throne and pat me on the head and said, oh, that Erica, you know, she tries so hard, but (laughs) she just can't ever quite seem to get it together. But because God is loving, he had to love me. It's sort of like he's obligated because he's God. And through the pages of Ezekiel, I realized how utterly wrong I had that and how deeply and passionately and fervently God loves his children and how hard and fast he is chasing after them to help us understand this deep, deep desire for relationship. And it changed my whole concept of how God views me. Wow. Well, there's a lot more to this study, An Unexpected Revival, an eight-week Bible study from Erica Wiggenhorn and Moody Publishers. We encourage you to check it out. A link at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Erica, thank you for helping us meet Ezekiel up close and personal. Thank you, John. You have a wonderful day. And you as well. And don't you go away because Charlie Dyer is back with a great set of Bible questions. We're hoping one of them is yours here on The Land and the Book. From Moody Radio, this is The Land and the Book with Charlie Dyer and yours truly, John Geiger. It's segment three, questions and answers. And I've got one for you. How do you share the gospel with a Jewish person? Because of cultural, historical, and religious differences, it is sometimes challenging to navigate a gospel conversation with somebody from a a Jewish background. You ever wondered how the uh, quote-unquote professionals do it? Well, to answer that question, our friends at Life and Messiah want to mail you samples of the tracks their staff use as they share the gospel. This will serve a dual purpose of equipping you in methods of presenting the gospel and also supplying you with tracks that you can give to your Jewish friends and neighbors. Life and Messiah's prayer is that these tracks will help further the spread of the gospel among the Jewish people. To receive this helpful assortment of tracks, all you need to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org And click on the Moody Radio button there for more information. Uh, Don't miss out on this great opportunity. All right, let's get to our questions today. It's a big stack as always, and we'll start with Silas. He takes us to Genesis chapter 26, where Abimelech said to Isaac, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might soon have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt on us. 
Was this the ease with which people in the days of Isaac could sleep with the wives of other people? I was of the opinion that wives would be more faithful to their husbands. Well, I think the key is found in verse 7. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she's my sister, because he was afraid to say, she's my wife. Anyone approaching Rebecca wouldn't know she was Isaac's wife, and that opened her up as a supposedly single woman to unwanted advances. By passing off Rebecca as his sister, rather than admitting she was his wife, Isaac was trying to protect himself against those who might try to kill him and take her. But he was actually putting Rebecca in greater danger from someone who might see this single woman as a vulnerable target. Clearly, Isaac was in the wrong in doing this. Thankfully, God graciously protected both him and Rebecca. Ed says, I have heard that many materials needed to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem are currently being gathered so that the temple could be rebuilt in a very short period of time. Is this true? Well, many items are indeed being prepared for a new temple. Uh, Those include the various implements that will be used by the priests in the temple, uh, the garments for the priests, and even items like the altar for offering sacrifices and the golden menorah. Uh, This group's also working to find a red heifer. They recently brought several potential candidates into Israel, though they won't know if they're suitable candidates for another two years. Now, I've also heard individuals say that marble and limestone are being prepared and stored to build the actual temple building, but I've never been able to verify those reports. But I have seen the implements which are on display in the Jewish quarter in Jerusalem, so I can verify that they do exist. Dave thanks us for the land and the book, and his question is regarding Ezekiel chapters 8 and 9. All kinds of abominations of the elders and leaders and depth of sins listed in chapter 8. And he wants to know, was this a spiritual vision where the executioners were symbolic of what the Chaldeans were going to do, or were they angels sent by God for specific judgments? What are your thoughts? Well, I think the executioners that are mentioned in those two chapters were angelic beings, and they were responsible for carrying out God's judgment. Now, I do believe the ultimate fulfillment came when the Chaldeans and the Babylonians attacked Jerusalem from 588 to 586 BC. During that 30-month siege, Ezekiel had earlier said a third of the population would die of starvation, a third would die by the sword, and I believe these angelic executioners were overseeing that judgment. Sometimes they work through natural means like famine uh, to make sure that those under judgment would die. And other times they work through human means like guiding the Babylonian soldiers to find and kill those under condemnation. Now, I believe the mark the scribe put on people was real, though not necessarily visible. Its purpose was to show that God knew those who were still loyal to him, and he was promising to watch over them even as his judgment came against Israel. In fact, I see a similarity to the sealing of the 144,000 in Revelation 7 and the satanic counterfeit, the mark of the beast, that shows loyalty to the Antichrist later in Revelation 13. Now, I do like uh, an application. Those whose hearts most closely match that of God are the ones who are grieved by the sin of their nation and who are crying out to God for his intervention. Sometimes it's a cry for revival. Other times it's a cry for divine judgment. But as believers, I do think we're called to pray for our land, for our leaders, for our fellow citizens, and for our churches. And there's much to call out to God about right now. That's Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, and you're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio, Segment 3, Questions and Answers. Uh, David listens to us on WPEL and on Spotify and wonders about the story of Judah and Tamar. Uh, He comes to the conclusion that this section of Genesis has the emergence of Judah as its focus 
his three older brothers are disqualified from the position of firstborn by their sins, and uh, by the end of their negotiations with Joseph in Egypt, it's Judah who's doing the talking. Uh, I know that God used Joseph to preserve the line of Christ, but it seems the emergence of Judah as the one through whom the Messiah would come might be the primary point of the story. I've never heard anybody speak to this idea. I'd appreciate your feedback. Well, I, I do believe there is a focus on Judah in the last part of Genesis, but actually I personally see a, a more emphasis there being placed on the role God had Joseph play in preserving the entire line of Israel. Now, here's why I say that. Uh, this whole account begins in chapter 37, verse 2, where Moses writes, this is the account of Jacob's family line, but then the focus immediately turns to Joseph. You know, Judah leaving his brothers in chapter 38 actually interrupts the account of Joseph being sold as a slave to Egypt. Chapter 39, verse 1, follows seamlessly after the last verse in chapter 37, if you take the Judah narrative out in chapter 38. Now that leads me to ask, so why is the account of Judah and Tamar placed where it is to interrupt the story about Joseph? And I think the answer might be, at least in part, to show why God needed to take the entire family of Jacob to Egypt. They were in danger of spiraling out of control and ceasing to be the very nation God had called them to be. Uh, we have the brothers plotting to kill Joseph, and then we have Judah leaving his brothers and marrying the daughter of a Canaanite. It's as though the line of Jacob is beginning to disintegrate. The story then returns to Joseph, who distinguishes himself with his godly wisdom and ends up being placed next to Pharaoh in Egypt. Then in chapter 47, Joseph works it out for the family to dwell in Goshen as shepherds. In fact, it says, for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. You know, God made it virtually impossible for Jacob's descendants to intermarry because the Egyptians detested shepherds. Finally, in chapter 50, Joseph explains how God directed all these events, he says, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Now, all that to say, I think Joseph's the one featured in this part of Genesis, but I do think that a subplot if you will, is the ascendancy of Judah until he's identified as the tribe from whom Shiloh comes. I also find it interesting that Judah and Joseph's son Ephraim become the two dominant tribes in the time of the Exodus. Judah leads the group to the east of the tabernacle, Ephraim leads the group to the west, and the two spies who bring back a good report are Joshua from Ephraim and Caleb from Judah. Todd writes, somebody sent me a video that purported to find hidden meanings behind Hebrew words in the original text based on the pictures associated with ancient Hebrew letters. What are your thoughts on such an idea? Yeah, I don't put too much stock in systems that try to find hidden meanings behind the biblical text based on either the pictures behind the letters or the numerical value of the letters. Uh, such attempts to find you know, hidden or deeper meaning usually end up bypassing or ignoring the actual meaning of the text. Rather than the text meaning what it says, it now means whatever a person can read into it. Now, a Bible study tip, you know, I learned this many years ago, and I found it to be true. It goes like this. When the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense. Mm. Uh, we'd be better off if we spent more time trying to understand and obey what God has clearly communicated instead of trying to find some fanciful hidden meanings that are more the product of our imagination than of God's revelation. Charlie, could you share your thoughts on the archaeological findings at Tel Al-Hammam in Jordan? indicating that it is the biblical city of Sodom. Yeah, first, for those who might not be familiar with it, Tel el-Hammam is uh, on the northeast side of the Dead Sea, just across the river from uh, Jericho, actually, and uh, some are promoting it as the location of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Now, I have a problem with that. In fact, I have several problems. But the first is in Genesis 19, when Lot and his family fled Sodom, they were fleeing toward another town called Zoar, and it was already getting near sunrise. In fact, the angelic visitors took Lot outside the city and told him to escape to the mountains. Uh, now, here's the problem. If Tel el-Hammam is the uh, city of Sodom or Gomorrah, uh, Zoar's located in the southern third of the Dead Sea. It's 50 miles away. Uh, even allowing a few hours before the sun peaked over the hills, it seems impossible for someone to run that distance by foot in just a few hours. But if Sodom and the other cities were in the area now covered by the southern third of the Dead Sea, it would have only been a few miles away, and that's far more doable for Lot and his family to flee, as the angel said. And my second problem with the northern site, though, is uh, in Genesis 19, it says, The Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire uh, from out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Well, Tel Hamam is located directly across from Jericho, as I said before. In fact, just 13 miles away. If God sent a cataclysmic destruction that destroyed all the valley, then I think Jericho would have been destroyed as well. But no such destruction was ever found in the archaeological record at that time in Jericho. So if the destruction happened like God said, and I believe it did, then Tel el-Hammam just to me doesn't fit all the details of the account. But putting all those cities in the southern third of what's now the Dead Sea does make sense. In fact, that's why I think in Genesis 13, Moses had to add a clarifying note about the region of Sodom and Gomorrah. He said it was well watered like the garden of the Lord, but that was before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's a look at questions here on The Land and the Book. We're coming up, it's Charlie Dyer's Devotion. Stay with us. ever met anybody who had too much wisdom? I didn't think so. I'm John Geiger. This is The Land of the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. It's segment four, our devotional. And uh, Charlie, we're looking today at Proverbs 19, verses two and three. Proverbs, the book of wisdom. So what wisdom are we looking at today? Well, today Solomon's going to tell us about three reasons for failure. So if you want to make sure that you don't fail in life, listen to what Solomon has to say. And we'll get to that devotional after we pause now to listen to this Holy Land experience. I love these testimonies of people who've traveled to the Holy Land and have great insights for us based on their experience there. I'm Sandy Smith, and this has been a wonderful trip here in Israel to see the proximity of where so many things in the Bible happened in such a small area. But the most important thing to me was when we went to the River Jordan to see where Christ was baptized or a similar place to that. It was very serene and peaceful. And yet there were so many people who wanted to be baptized in these very waters. And they came from so many different countries. And that as I saw people coming up out of the waters, the expression on their face was that it was so meaningful, so very personal, and that Christ did one sacrifice and it was sufficient for all people from the beginning of time until far until the future till the end of the world and to be able to be a part of that and realize that if I ever feel like I'm the only Christian that's standing on a ground that is difficult I shouldn't feel that way because there are people all around the world that are finding the same peace through Christ's sacrifice for us. 
Well, the book of Proverbs is part of that section of the Bible we call wisdom literature, but it seems to me, Charlie, it isn't wisdom unless we apply it. What do you think? Uh, you're exactly right. That's the idea. In fact, wisdom has the idea of skillfulness, skillful living in life is what uh, chokmah, wisdom, really refers to. And uh, that's what Solomon gives us in this book. Okay. Well, we'll let you at today's devotional. Okay, thanks. Well, this is the final week in our four-week series that I've called Proverbs to Live By in the New Year. And our journey today takes us to one of the most beautiful locations in all Israel, the Bonius Waterfall near the foot of Mount Hermon. Now, this stream, which begins at the base of Mount Hermon, cascades down a 33-foot waterfall into a pool below before continuing its journey toward the Sea of Galilee and becoming part of the Jordan River in the process. Now, the walk to the waterfall, it's about 180 steps downhill. It's not that difficult, and once you reach the falls, the mist-cooled air makes it feel as if you've stepped into an air-conditioned room. It's a welcome relief after a morning in the hot sun. Now, we're here today to focus on some wise advice from Proverbs 19, verses 2 and 3. It's not good to have zeal without knowledge, nor to be hasty and miss the way. A man's own folly ruins his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. Now, I can see the wheels turning in your mind. What does this waterfall have to do with Proverbs 19? So, let me bring you here on two separate trips I've done. The first was with a group of students. We hiked down to see the waterfall, and then I turned them loose to take photos and explore along the stream. The area is a national park, and there are a number of hiking paths. As long as the students stayed on our side of the stream, and as long as they worked their way uphill, they will eventually end up on the pathway at the top of the cliff that leads back to the parking lot and to our bus. At least, I thought it was impossible to get lost. Unfortunately, one student was in a hurry to get ahead of the group because he wanted to shoot photos without having anyone else in the pictures. He scampered along the pathway leading downstream. I watched as the others snapped their photos and started up the pathway toward the bus, and I followed along. Once it looked like everyone was back, I took a final head count before we pulled away. Unfortunately, our overzealous photographer was AWOL. Another student and I went back to look for him. At the very top of the gorge, the pathway splits into two separate trails. We decided we would each walk for 15 minutes down the separate trails and then return back to the top, hopefully with one of us bringing the missing student. Thankfully, the plan worked. But what does that story have to do with this parable? Well, our student illustrated the first of the three reasons Solomon gives for failure in life. The student demonstrated zeal without knowledge. He was excited about the falls and he wanted to capture great pictures, but he set off by himself without knowing the layout of the park. And as a result, he got lost. The second illustration from this waterfall involves my own misstep. Same falls, but with a different group. We made it down and back and then discovered that one person was missing. Well, I went back and started bounding down the steps toward the falls. About halfway down, I spotted our missing participant. I waved at him and shouted his name. Unfortunately, I did that right at a spot where the steps make a sharp turn, and I was in such a hurry that I wasn't paying attention. My foot slipped off the edge of the stair, and I started tumbling down the side of a steep embankment. I ended up scratched and bruised, but thankfully, the only thing really damaged was my pride. That painful process taught me what Solomon meant when he said, it's not good to be hasty and miss the way. Enthusiasm doesn't make up for lack of preparation, and speed can't overcome a lack of attention to detail. But Solomon adds a third reason for failure. A man's own folly ruins his life. 
Sometimes our own stupidity gets in the way of success. Hiking down to the falls but forgetting to bring along your smartphone or camera would be one example. Or having your smartphone with you but then discovering the battery's dead because you forgot to charge it the night before might be another. The point is that sometimes failure has nothing to do with our misplaced enthusiasm or zeal. We fail because of a totally unrelated error of judgment or simple mistake on our part. Solomon then ends this two-verse proverb by describing the typical response to failure caused by our own folly. Yet his heart rages against the Lord. You know what I mean. How could God not remind me to plug in my phone? How could God let me walk off without my phone this morning? How could God allow me to lose track of time or, or not see the step or, or, or whatever it is that causes us to fail? Solomon's take on life is that almost universally, we tend to blame others, including God, when the real cause for our failure lies at our own front door. God didn't push me down the side of that hill. I was in too big of a hurry and missed the step. So how can these two verses help us as we head into the rest of this new year? Let me suggest two principles that can make us more successful as the year moves forward. The first focuses on responsibility and the second on accountability. Responsibility is the reminder that God expects me to take ownership for my actions. There's nothing wrong with zeal or enthusiasm, but I'm responsible to make sure my decisions are based on clear-headed thought and understanding. God expects me to read, understand, and obey his word. I'm also responsible to make sure I don't get so busy that I miss the way. That expression, by the way, missing the way or missing the mark, is also used in the Bible to refer to sin, which is missing the mark or missing the way when it comes to following God. The bottom line is that I need to take personal responsibility for my actions. But responsibility then needs to be balanced by accountability. We know that we all sin and come short of the glory of God, and we know that if we haven't already failed this year, we will at some point in the not-too-distant future. And that's why it's also good to have friends who can hold us accountable for our actions and who can help us see where we went wrong and who can help us get back on the right path. It's not good to have zeal without knowledge, nor to be hasty and miss the way. A man's own folly ruins his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. Wise advice from Solomon on three reasons we often fail and the one excuse we should never use. Four weeks of Proverbs, and we've just scratched the surface. So here's one last challenge for you. Spend time in the book of Proverbs this coming month. Find a proverb and meditate on it. What's the principle God has in that proverb for you that day? Proverbs will help you understand life from God's perspective. And putting these Proverbs into practice will help you become a wiser follower of our Lord. Well, that's great. Thank you, Charlie. A look at Proverbs 19, verses 2 and 3. Three reasons for failure. Boy, great insights, Charlie. As always, thanks for that devotional. Uh, you're welcome, John. You know, if you have never visited our website, uh, you're missing out. A lot of great tools there, including information about today's guest, past guests, future programs, past programs, as well as links to books that Charlie and I have written. You'll find us at thelandandthebook.org. Thelandandthebook.org. For Charlie Dyer and the team, I'm John Geiger. Thanks for listening to The Land and the Book, a presentation of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.